Welcome to Artificially Intelligent Marketing, a weekly podcast where we stay on top of the latest trends, tips, and tools in the world of marketing AI, helping you get the best results from your marketing efforts. Now let's join our hosts, Paul Avery and Martin Broadhurst. Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode 38 of Artificially Intelligent Marketing and Happy New Year to you all. It's the first episode of 2024. And as always, I'm joined by the wonderful, the wondrous, the magnificent Martin Broadhurst. How are you, Martin? I'm very good. 2024 is upon us and I'm excited to see what it brings in terms of AI developments and Derby County successes because we've not seen a lot of them in recent years. And I think this is the year, you know. I think you've got more chance of AGI this year than Derby (laughs) County successes. And I'm happy to go on the record with that. In terms of AI developments, I can't tell you what's going to happen this year. Um, I'm not sure anybody really knows. But I can tell you what's happened over the last couple of weeks and we can conjecture on on where we might be heading, at least in the short term, because we've got some great stories this week. right? And we're going to be talking about OpenAI's GPT Store going live. We're going to talk about ChatGPT Teams. We're going to talk about MidJourney version 6. Talk about an interesting new tool called Bland AI, which is like a real-time AI phone call system, which is interesting. We're going to talk a little bit of robotics. There's been some cool robotics news this week. Martin and I are going to debate rag chatbots. Why aren't there more of them? If you don't know what a rag chatbot is, don't worry. We'll go through that in a bit more detail later on. We're going to talk perplexity, which is a very interesting tool that kind of is like a potential Google killer, but we'll have a chat about that as well. A little bit of conversation about New York Times suing OpenAI, talk about what's been going on at CES 2024, and probably a whole host of other things in between. But to get us started, Martin, why don't we get into the GPT store? What is this and why is this important for the folks, the marketing and sales folks that might be listening to us today? Well, the big development that came out of OpenAI's Developer Day conference a couple of months ago was GPTs. And these were really, you could see them as kind of the next evolution of what had previously been plugins in ChatGPT. And it's basically where you can uh, connect external tools to ChatGPT and give certain system prompts to give uh, chat GPT, certain characteristics or capabilities and GPT or chat GPT plus subscribers have access to create their own GPTs for their own personal use, but you can share them publicly. And they announced at the developer day conference that the store was going to be launched later in the year where anybody can go in and use these publicly available GPTs. And the interesting thing was revenue share was included in that. So OpenAI basically said, if your GPT is used a lot by people, you will get a share of the revenues from the GPT plus subscriptions. And the store is now live. So if anybody's interested in using it, you need a chat GPT plus subscription, go on the left-hand side and click on explore GPTs where it will bring up a panel in the main area where you can search and then click on any GPTs that you want. It's been widely adopted and one user who has got a lot of GPTs in the top 10 of the various different categories um, because they're all categorized by um, a use case really he has seen a hundred X increase in traffic to his website since the launch of the store. So there's clearly lots of users. And what we're seeing is there's a a lot of eyeballs to be uh, captured. If you have a top ranking GPT in any of the categories. It's quite clever, actually, some of that, because Having been playing with some of those, some of the more powerful GPTs, a lot of them have found quite clever ways to promote their own offering as part of the output. So an example would be an SEO GPT that maybe helps you do on-page optimization for a given page where you'll get really good advice out of the GPT as you would expect. 
And then the last output or the last bullet point saying the advice is if you really want to dive deeper into this, check out XYZ website where obviously that website is the professional website of the person who made the GPT who just so uh, happens to offer SEO consultancy capability. So I think people are finding quite clever ways to promote themselves in their GPT's outputs. And that's even before we have details from OpenAI and what that revenue sharing model is going to be. So I'm really impressed with the cleverness of people to figure out ways to weave their own brands into these GPTs and use them as brand awareness and potentially even website traffic generating tools before they even get paid to even have them there. Yeah, well, there's a will, there's a way. And marketers are usually the first to uh, take over a new channel, right? It's uh, we, If we can take over and spam it with our brands, we will. Unfortunately so. Um, I did see uh, a couple of LinkedIn posts where people were warning that some of the GPTs seem engineered up to try and get you to give them your personal details. So another public service announcement here, as we often do, don't go putting any sensitive details into a GPT, um, especially if it's one that appears to send data to another place. Usually when you're using a GPT, it will tell you when it needs to send data to another place via API, and you'll actually have to approve that. Um, but yes, that's kind of an extra layer of self-protection is if you're using a GPT and it connects to a third-party service, just be careful about what you're putting in and think twice before you allow it to, because in the same way marketers get involved very quickly and potentially ruin channels, you've also got people who figure out a quick way to steal your personal identif identification and personal information and find a way to start making money out of that. So interesting platform. I've been playing with quite a few GPTs that I think are quite cool, but I already can see potential abuses left, right and center that we're all going to have to be very careful about. Any... um. Any particular GPTs that you've found useful or fun? So do you know what? I've, I've trying to get into a habit of before I go to chat GPT and start a conversation to get something done, searching the GPT store to see if there's a GPT for that that might have just been primed in some way to enable it to generate better outputs. So I'm still kind of in love with the first GPTs that I found because people were sharing them on Twitter and LinkedIn and providing public links like the convert anything GPT is still pretty mm, cool. Yeah, yeah. Give it an image of one sort and converts it into another like PNG to JPEG, convert audio from different formats, video from different formats. That one's pretty cool. Um, I'm, I'm still on the fence a bit as to how good is it to have a GPT versus just have a conversation with chat GPT. And I'm still... I'm still to find a GPT where I'm like, oh, wow, I could not have done this in chat, in chat GPT alone. Yeah, the power is going to come from the function calling, right? The connected uh, GPTs to third-party systems and external software. Yeah, and when I tried to build those myself, it was really ropey and broke really easily. So I suspect a lot of people have been having those problems. Um, and a lot of the GPTs I play with don't do much function calling. Even the convert anything doesn't seem to do much. I think it's using like the Python libraries to actually, we're getting a bit detailed now, but I don't think it's sending information out. I think it's using what's already built into ChatGPT to enable those conversions and being clever with mm. Code Interpreter, now advanced data analysis to enable some of that stuff. Um, but yeah, I I, th I think it will evolve. It's so much easier to use than, the, than plugins mm. that from a UX perspective, you talk a lot about UX and have over the last year it's got much more chance of catching on than plugins because it's not a complete pain in the ass to use. Yeah, plugins were were just a nightmare and never quite delivered on the promise. I don't think I ever really embraced them, but I see more potential for that with the, the GPT store. A moment ago, you gave a public service announcement talking about be careful with what data you put into chat GPT. Well, we've had another development in that domain with uh, OpenAI this week where they announced... ChatGPT for Teams that is now live. So previously, if you were a, an enterprise, you were a business, you had to use ChatGPT Enterprise, which would, well, first of all, it came with quite a, a fee as far as we understand, but all of the data that you put into it was kept secure. Unlike if you're a free ChatGPT or ChatGPT Plus subscriber whose data will be used to train the models in the future. Well, now OpenAI have announced ChatGPT for Teams, 
where the data stays safe. Uh, this is a $30 a month subscription or $25 per month if you pay annually. There's a minimum subscription, so you need at least two people on the subscription. Makes sense. It's a Teams license, right? Um, but yeah, this launch this week, you get a higher usage cap, so you can use GPT-4 at a higher rate than you can on ChatGPT+. You have access to the 32K context window, and your data's secure. So yeah, what do you think of that, Paul? I'm pretty excited. Um, we've talked about this in different ways and have been... Forced is the wrong word, but we've had to go looking for tools that we can use where we feel confident that we can put our own company's data in, um, which in some cases is a bit of a pain, especially because GP, ChatGPT's capabilities, once they won't be on text, code interpreter, stroke data analysis, give it an image and it can see what's in the image and all those other cool things you could do, they made it a bit harder to just use a text-based generating tool because there's cool stuff that you want to do in ChatGPT that you can't. We run our workshops, mine, where we throw a load of dummy sales data in and then show how you could use that to do analysis of your sales data or even automatically create reports exported as PowerPoint files for you to share with internal team members, which is all well and good, but it's limited by the fact that your demonstration is a bunch of dummy data. And then people are like, yeah, can't wait to get started with this. Where's all my proprietary, unique, highly sensitive sales data? And we're like, whoa, don't put it in there. You can't. And now, if we understand everything correctly from ChatGPT and, and the team at OpenAI, now you can. So I'm very excited about that. You and I have been waiting ages for Enterprise. I've been on the waiting list for Enterprise forever. Biostrata, with its 20 employees, was very low on the Enterprise <laughs> yeah. uh, um, sort of priority list for OpenAI. So when I've spoken about this, when I've been out and about at different conferences or speaking on AI and marketing, that's been the best I can recommend to people, right? Get on the waiting list for enterprise. And if you're a big enough organization, hurrah, you might be able to get it. I'm so happy to see this bridge the gap. It's, you can get ChatGPT teams up to 149 users. Um, so if you want everyone in your business to have it, then you have to be a team of under 150 odd people. Um, but not everyone in your business is going to need it. So I can imagine this could be appropriate for organizations up to as much as a thousand employees, you know, depending on what types of roles you have in your business. And and it's pretty cost effective, really, not a huge jump from, from the original ChatGPT. One thing we talk about a lot is don't get coerced into buying an annual subscription because it seems a bit cheaper. I, all, I We've got ChatGPT at Teams at Biostrata already, pretty much bought it as soon as it came out. Um, it's tempting, but who knows? Like Gemini Ultra comes out in a couple of months time and then everyone's like, oh, it turns out Gemini Ultra from Google was actually better than GPT-4 for all these use cases. And then you're like, oh, crumbs, I want to switch, but I've already paid for a year of this one. So I think the advice still holds, Martin, don't pay for any annual subscriptions to save a few bucks because the new tools that are going to come out over the coming months could make that actually, it looks like a wise investment now, but I don't suspect it is. And you should only really be paying for monthly subscriptions. I think that's been our view. Do you agree with that, Ryan? Yeah, it's, it's not what I practice, but yeah, it's my view. <laughs> Got to drink your own Kool-Aid, mate. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> um, no, I, I ended up going straight in on the annual. Um, yeah. <laughs> the, the belief of that is I don't see myself moving away from, from chat GPT specifically. I actually agree with you very much so on other tools built on top of things. So things like HeyGen, things like Eleven Labs, various other tools that I have subscriptions for, they're all monthlies. I don't see myself moving away from chat GPT within the next 12 months. I agree with you. Um, I'll be honest. I talk about Magi a lot on this show. And to be honest, moving to chat GPT teams might see us move away from Magi, but I also know Magi's developers are working to build multimodal capabilities into Magi. So when that comes out, I'm really not sure what tool I'm going to use because Magi are also this week, I think today about to add Gemini Pro. So access to Google's models and ChatGPT in the same tool for less than you'd pay for ChatGPT. Um, so I, I honestly use Magi more often than I use ChatGPT unless I need a specific use case where I want to upload data or I want to upload images and have it analyze the images, which of course, commercially, 
I couldn't do because I couldn't trust mm. the ChatGPT account that I had. So this actually puts the cat among the pigeons a little bit for me. And now I've got to see how much I develop some response. But that's why why I still want the flexibility. We could probably spend many hours debating this, mine. But um, I guess for the listeners, go check out ChatGPT Teams. If you go and have a look at the web page for this, it's very interesting that lots of the testimonials from customers and quotes and examples are clearly deliberately engineered to give you confidence that you can put your own business data in. Like one of them's like, help me write a blog post um, ahead of our new product launch. Here's all the unique features of that product, which of course you'd never do before because you didn't want to put sensitive proprietary information in. Another example is, oh, I upload my sales data and I analyze it a bit like the examples that we've given in the past. So they're clearly trying to give us all confidence that we can put sensitive information into ChatGPT if we've got ChatGPT teams. So as a user, go have a look, check it out. It might be that you can do cool stuff with it that you didn't feel comfortable to do before. Should we move on to our next story, Martino? Let's do it. Let's do it. Um, next one is an update to Midjourney. So Midjourney has been testing version six of its image generator for listeners to the podcast who are probably quite au fait with Midjourney. Um, but for those that are not, Midjourney is one of those power tools for generating AI images. In our perspective, it generates the most photorealistic images of all the sets, especially because that, even though Dolly 3, which you can access through ChatGPT, can do it, it did get the feeling towards the end of last year that that photorealism was being watered down a bit. So uh, Midjourney is still your best for that. And people have been playing with it and getting it to do some pretty cool stuff. Um, although it does tend to have a tendency to almost over-detail sort of it's got an obsession with, I don't know if you've been playing with this, Martin, but it's got an obsession with skin details. It's almost like everybody has to have freckles and lines um, in their skin and in blemishes and imperfections. It's almost like that's been dialed up to 11 just to show that it can do it. Um, but it's an alpha and I'm sure all of that stuff will get rebalanced. Um, perhaps the most important improvement is it can now do text. If you want to give it lots of text, it struggles, you're better with one or two words, but there's this ongoing arms race between Midjourney and Dolly 3, it feels like, and Midjourney just threw out its next big weapon to show us what it's capable of, and I think it's got a lot of interesting stuff. Have you been paying attention to Midjourney version 6 at all, Martin, how to play or anything like that? Not so much. I still use Midjourney through Discord, but I'm using V5 predominantly. I have seen the outputs. They look great. I mean, this is the one thing that we can say for Midjourney. The outputs consistently look fantastic and actually uh, i do like them more than the the open ai ones open ai feels there's something about them now in the in dolly 3 where i see them and they they just have an imprint of dolly 3 right they they have a look and feel about them unless you get really into being specific on the style if you just say oh i want a picture like this or i want an image of such and such there's something about them that's immediately recognizable, I think. It's a I bit think. like every time I drink a brew dog beer, I'm like, this has a brew dog beer characteristic to it. And mm -hmm. yeah. It's like every time you go to a Derby County performance and you come away sort of mildly disappointed, you know before you go that that's what you're going to get. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In I many respects, I like the consistency, right? <laughs> At least you're like, yeah, they never let you down in a weird sort of way. Um, yeah. Dolly 3, I'm a bit, dis that, that part of it disappoints me because when it first came out, you didn't have that. And when you accessed it through Bing, so if you don't have a Dolly, uh, sorry, a ChatGPT Plus account, you can actually access it through, well, it's being called Copilot now. We'll talk about yeah. that uh, later in, a, in another segment, but you can get it to produce images that you can't, you can get Bing stroke Copilot to produce images that Dolly 3 in ChatGPT, oh, there's so many brand and product name problems making it confusing for people they did this gang sorry we didn't um but with bing stroke copilot you can get it to produce images that dolly through never like um I, my favorite way to test it is to get deadpool doing different things um and at the beginning i could test um dolly three against bing and bing would show me deadpool and bing uh, um and dolly three would say sorry De deadpool's uh copyrighted work and we can't show you it and and the photo realism even at that stage was better in the bing version so i think they're watering dolly 3 down i don't know if it's mm. a compute thing or a copyright thing or a deep fake thing but it does feel like they've done it deliberately to me 
Um, some other image news this week was one of the biggest challenges. If you've been playing with Midjourney, Dolly 3, some of the tools we talk about on the podcast, you'll know that one of the awesome things would be to like create a comic book or something similar, right? Or even like a, uh, some storyboards. But one of the big challenges is having consistent characters in your outputs, which there are some workarounds. You can use something called the seed value to try and ensure that the characters in your images stay similar. And you can do some stuff with that, but it's very hard to have full control over what that character's doing, and it just basically doesn't really work. But there was some research that came out of Bike Dance, which is the parent company of TikTok, who have created a tool called Dream Tuner, which they say makes it much easier to do subject-driven generation from a single image. So basically you give it an image, that sets the character, and then you can generate subsequent images where the character stays the same. So we won't get sort of into the details too much of how they do that, but it opens up the possibility that in the near future, the image generation tools that we're all using could potentially have the power to create consistent characters, which opens up a lot of creative avenues in marketing and outside of marketing that we can't currently do, but many users wish they could. So I think that's something to keep an eye on um, and something we've been talking about on the podcast before, Martin. The examples in the research paper, and it is still just a research paper, right? This is not in production or available for anyone to use yet. But the examples in the research paper do look really promising. So uh, you can be sure that, you know, industry is all over this. People want to see this deployed as quickly as possible. So, you know, if I was going to make any prediction about what we might expect by the end of 2024, consistent character development via AI image generation might be one of the things I would look out for. I agree. I think they've. I think they know exactly where the limitations are, and they're just like crossing them out, like text generation. We all wanted text. It's like, oh, wouldn't that be great? And now we have it. And I think this is absolutely in the list that you're right, mine. Was there, was there some news as well about Midjourney and video generation that you saw? Was there something in there? Yeah, they're going to start training video models this month. It was discussed by the Midjourney CEO on a Q and A on their Discord channel. Um, so when that actually appears for production and use or an alpha version remains to be seen, but they are moving into the AI video generation game. Not necessarily surprising given um, video is basically 24 images per second, right? Um, I'm quite excited about this news because I see Midjourney as the highest quality images and a lot of things about video is the underlying image to begin with. If they are able to stitch those images together in a meaningful way and not get any of these crazy artifacts that we've seen in other tools like um, Runway and Pika, although they are improving at extreme speed, both of those tools, it could be quite another interesting um, player in the game. And as we talk a lot on the podcast, the more players trying to improve these tools, the faster we're going to see progress. So yeah, I'm excited to see what Midjourney come up with. Let's talk bland.ai, Martin. This is quite an interesting tool that's been getting a bit of buzz over the last week or so. It is, and it might be the thing that kills off cold calling eternally for me. <laughs> um, so this is a, a real-time AI phone call system designed for sales, customer service, and more. And yeah, it's been, uh, it's been making waves, shall we say. Uh, someone said that their jaw was on the floor after testing it. Uh, such was its capability. So it's um, capable of sending up to 500,000 calls, which is just what? Yeah. Unfathomably large. Um, so it allows you to scale up AI sales calls, right? Um, some people have said that the voices sometimes sound a little bland, but you're doing AI sales calls at scale. And the reason I say that I think this is potentially a cold call killer is if everybody has this power to just suddenly, it's like cold outreach. If I ask you about your inbox now, Paul, and say, uh, in your inbox, have you got any emails that you think are sent via a sales automation platform uh, as part of a sales sequence? I imagine you've got a couple in there. Mm, yeah, far too many for my liking. Yeah, and I, this... Uh, Feels like the same. I can see the use cases in customer service though. Right? If, if it's incoming calls 
and you've got something that's a much more lifelike voice, much more almost character AI driven conversation. Uh, I think that will work very well. Um, in terms of sales activity, if it was cold, I think that that's a terrifying prospect if it can be rolled out at scale at this level. Yeah, that bit makes me cry a bit. Like, I really don't want that. Um, but I, I think you're right. The customer service part has some power to it. Because um, I think the key here is with great power comes great responsibility. And we know, as we've talked about on this podcast already, that probably is going to be misused. And that is the worry. But if you can, in your organization, find a way to leverage tools like these that benefit the customer and you do it well, well, you're increasing response times to customer service calls. If you can if you can sort of ensure the quality of the advice that's given on those calls and people no longer have to wait in lines to speak to someone, well, you're going to be adding value to customers and they're probably going to be willing to speak with a robot, even though they'd probably rather speak with a human, because if you can get them to their solution faster, they're going to appreciate it. What they're not going to appreciate is the type of robo uh, cold calls that you, you mentioned, Martin. And I had a little... I've been, I have, it'd be wrong to say I've been playing with it, but I've been watching some of the demos and sort of partaking in some of the conversation online. And what this reminds me of is Google's demo many years ago, mm. where they showed us, in essence, an AI that would make calls on your behalf, book restaurants for you, would know the right questions to ask, had like little human fake ums and ahs and pauses. Um, and this is the first, I think the reason it's making buzz is because this is the first genuine product that anybody can access that can do that. But you're right. Some of the critical feedback has is, is been the AI responds quick, which is great. Like they've clearly, because they know the language, large language model needs to process what the person said and then come up with a response. They know response time is important, but it seems to me that they've optimized it so much that the AI always speaks back too quickly, whereas most humans have to pause for a second to think about what they've heard. And then the other criticism was that there wasn't enough natural variation in how the person, the fake person in this case, speaks to be believable. Like we'd all learn quite quickly to be able to differentiate what yeah. was a real person and what wasn't because these tools are not organic enough yet. I'm sure they will be. This is like the first one of these that we're seeing. So interesting. It Also, just talking about the the AI capabilities of dealing with customer service queries, I do wonder how much of this is going to be done by voice and how much of it will be just done via, well, text interfaces, maybe, maybe voice. I don't know. I'm going, I'm, I'm just thinking about how much I use chat GPT voice and, and have the conversations with chat GPT. And actually in real time, I'm having the argument in my head telling me that I'm wrong. Um, because there's an example with, Six Flags. I don't know if you've seen this on the Google website. They've got a case study with the theme park Six Flags and how they're using generative AI. So they've connected this with the Google Cloud Vertex services, and they've basically created an app with generative AI plugged into it, and they're using RAG, so the retrieval system connected to their own knowledge system or knowledge base. And it's now enabling cust uh, customers and visitors to their parks to ask questions, to create personalized itineraries for them on their visit. And if they've got questions about, you know, what time does this restaurant open and where can I find accessible parking or what have you, it will answer it in the app. And that's how I can see people uh, and I was imagining that as more of a text-based interface and maybe we're just going to move away from, from spoken interactions. But then I just thought about how much I enjoy using ChatGPT voice and completely shot myself down. I, I, I think the reason it's hard to imagine, and I thought about this a lot, is because I think it's both. And I think it comes down to information transfer speed. So I'm at the point now where I'm dictating 50 to 80% of my emails, depending on the sort of content, how well I know what I want to say, basically. Like if I know what I want to say, I can just speak really fast, transcribes, it's in the email, I can make a few edits and away I go. If I don't know what I want to say, it's easier to write it in some cases, to be honest, because then I can reformulate it as I go. But certainly in general, 
giving information for me is much faster to speak than it is to type. So I would rather speak. Absorbing information, I do much faster reading than I do listening. So my frustration with ChatGPT on the phone, um, because as I understand it, you can't dictate to the desktop app yet still. You can only do it on mobile, which is something for me they need to fix because I also want to speak to ChatGPT on desktop, not just on phone. But I don't really like having a conversation with ChatGPT on the phone because I want to speak to it because it's fast for me. And then I want to read what ChatGPT says back because it's fast for me. I don't want to listen to ChatGPT because it's not fast enough. So I think it will be a mixture, honestly, because what's your goal? Like if you're in the, if you're in the kitchen and you're cooking and you want to get a bit of quick recommendation, hey, would, would it be good to put this spice in this meal? Like you're not going to go over and read something or you're not going to get your phone out of your pocket, right? You're going to want it to speak back to you. But for me, when information speed is critical, I want to read, not listen. So I don't think I don't think reading and writing in that case is going away. I think it's just what's appropriate for the context. And yeah, what's the speed. use case? And the, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Another sort of interesting thing in this area is Martin and I have been like proper nerding out on robotics over the last week or two because there's been some real cool stuff going on. Um, and whilst this is probably outs well, it's AI driven stuff, A, eh? it's not the usual AI stuff we talk about, which is why we think it's important to talk about. Um, so this week we saw the figure 01 robot so figures a company that have emerged out of stealth over the last 12 months or so doing some really cool stuff and what they did is um they have a new landmark development has been brewing inside their organization quite literally ha 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 um because their figure one robot which is basically guided by neural networks has mastered the art of making a coffee and so this seems sort of probably quite a simple thing to be able to do but the reason that it's so interesting is it hasn't been programmed in the traditional way in terms of the steps you need to go through to make a coffee. It was trained, as I understand it, on videos of humans making a coffee. And then it learned from that information how to do it. This, for me, is an absolute critical game changer because the hardest thing about programming robots is programming them in the traditional style of all the steps they need to do to do a certain thing and then all the edge cases that can get in the way and cause issues. And when you operate in the real 3D world that we all live in, everything's an edge case, right? Like how big's the table? How tall's the table? What coffee machine is it? What size are the pods? What do I do if I drop a pod? What happens if the machine doesn't work the first time I press the button? Like it's a nightmare to code. So the idea that you could just give a load of video and have the robot learn from the video is critical. And this is also, as I understand it, what Tesla's now doing when it comes to its automatic driving. So there's a great book um, on Elon Musk. I can't remember the author, which is very naughty of me, um, but it's a, a very recent book out um, that's very worth reading. And the last parts of that book are in 2023. And they talk about the move that Tesla's making from programming how cars should react in different scenarios to just using the you know, billions of frames of data that the video data they're collecting from all of their cars to basically have the neural net teach itself how to drive in almost all conditions by just observing how humans did it, which if I'm honest, is what I thought they were doing from the start, but it wasn't. And it is now what they're doing. So this is really interesting because you could imagine now training a robot to pretty much do anything if you had video data of humans doing it and then give them the task. Because if they get the robotic aspects of it right, they'll be able to do anything. So robotics has been one of those things that ever since you saw Will Smith and iRobot, you're like, appreciate that all the robots were going to try and kill us and that's not ideal. But cool, wouldn't it be nice to have robots to help us with a load of stuff? This is like a huge amount of progress for me. And I'm sure people inside this industry probably knew a bit more about how some of this stuff was coming. But the fact that you could get a robot to do things for you is kind of not that far off. That's how it feels anyway. I don't know what you think, Martin. I know you've been paying attention to Tesla's work in this area as well. Yeah, last month they announced Gen 2 of their humanoid robot Optimus, which, again, it's that when you said about getting the, the robot elements right, you know, the actual mechanics of it, you know, making sure that if it opens a door, it doesn't rip the door off its hinges, right? Things like that. These are really quite important 
And they did a demo that showed this new humanoid robot and it's got good balance and it walks faster than the previous version. There's really little things in it, like the dexterity of the fingers is greatly improved. So they demonstrate that it can pick up an egg and it shows a visual of how the pressure pads on the fingers interpret the sensitivity and understand and interpret the, the well, how it senses the world really. And yeah, it's just a, a huge development. And I think this is, it's happening very quickly. Um, then Tesla are clearly not the only game in town. We've got figure one Boston dynamics has had their machines out, uh, in, in certainly in, uh, video form available to demo for a long time, whether they've actually gone into commercial applications yet. I'm not actually sure. Um, but robotics is, is big. Amazon did a story at the back end of last year talking about how they deployed 750,000 robots across their warehouses and they were expecting to deploy you know, that and more every year going forward. And they're also working on a humanoid robot to work in their factories alongside humans. The robots that they've got at the moment are all like production line type and <clears throat> little things to move boxes from A to B, but they're actually starting to look at deploying humanoid ones uh, later in the year as well. So yeah, it's definitely something we, we all need to keep an eye on because before you know it, there'll be robots in every neighborhood. It's kind of interesting. The, um, I, th I think that's where um, the developments will be felt most keenly. Like there are robots in picking factories for Amazon and other distributors, right? Like it's not like robotics is new to those environments, but the capabilities of those robots is improving quickly. Um, I read a story a week or two ago about Samsung was planning human-free, fully automated fabs within six years. So basically trying to eliminate the need for any human workers by having a like a smart sensing system to improve semiconductor processing and and all these types of things and so that's where the early developments will come but and and there's a real commercial driver for that which will probably lead to technologies that then will work in other environments like the home i think the other caveat to that is there are i'm not an expert in this but i, I read a fair bit about it and i did read a story about that in South Korea, the amount of robotics use in factories, et cetera, is maybe a little bit larger than in some countries, but they're not without their accidents. I did hear a story of a robot basically crushing a human worker to death without realizing the human worker was there, even though it had some sort of limited vision capabilities. So I'm sure there are a number of barriers beyond the ones we've talked about. The revolution about. begins, right? Well, indeed. Um, so, Yeah. It's easy to get excited, and I think there's stuff to be excited about. I'm sure there's plenty of, of barriers to overcome. But the thing I always think about, how does this tie back to you marketing folks that are listening, is when ChatGPT Vision became a thing and you could give ChatGPT an image and it knew everything that was in the image and it could help you mark someone's homework or whatever, the minute a computer can do that, why does it have to be a static computer that can do that? Why can't it be a robot? That can now see the world with greater clarity and understanding than robots could have achieved even maybe three years ago. The, the convergence of all these technologies is the types of things that trigger exponential change, right? You don't get large language models without the internet and the development of GPUs and then the improvements in GPUs, which were themselves driven by the gaming industry trying to render polygons to make cool looking games. And these are just a couple of strands that all come together to form this rope that is this exponential curve that I do believe we're on as it relates to technology improvements that then you see, well, now that's enabling robotics in this way. Um, so the software parts are really evolving very quickly. It's, it's pretty cool. Um, I'm quite excited about it anyway. Um, <laughs> Let's, we're going to switch gears slightly now. We're going to talk RAG. Um, Martin's mentioned it a few times in the in the episode so far. And it's also important as it relates even to GPTs because GPTs have a form of RAG to try and help them uh, better answer your questions. Let's talk a little bit about RAG. We've got a question we've been pondering, Martin, haven't we? Where are all the RAG 
chatbot. So could you start by just letting the listeners know what is RAG, why it is important, and why are we thinking about RAG chatbots at the moment? Yeah, so RAG stands for Retrieval Augmented Generation, and it's a strategy designed to enhance the performance of large language models when it comes to uh, accessing data that might not be within the training set. So proprietary data if about your company, maybe it's information from your your product manuals or something like that. And it's a way of, of limiting hallucinations and feeding the large language model information that would be maybe uh, outside of the training data because it was more recent than the cutoff date, something like that. Um, so there's a lot of hype around this at the moment because lots of companies obviously want to have chatbots and you know, chat GPT that's connected to your data. Wouldn't that be wonderful? But we're just not seeing that roll out into the real world at the speed at which the hype around LLMs suggests that you would expect to see it. Um, and there's an interesting <laughs> example recently where I think we get a, a bit of an insight into exactly why we're not seeing these deployed at the pace that you would maybe expect. And it's actually less to do with RAG per se than it is to do with the limitations of large language models on the whole. So the great example of Chevrolet, the car manufacturer, deployed an AI chatbot and it was powered by GPT and OpenAI large language models. What became apparent very quickly was despite the fact that it was connected to the company data and it had this RAG integration so it could tell you all about Chevrolet cars and prices and various models and what have you, um, it was still susceptible to a technique of what is effectively hacking the system and it was a technique called prompt injection. So users were able to manipulate the chatbot into offering ridiculously low prices for the vehicles, getting it to agree to legally binding offers to sell a car for a dollar. And this was basically achieved by users in the conversation with the chatbot, pretending to be the manager of a dealership or even the CEO of OpenAI and instructing the chatbot to agree to all customer statements or special offers. And then people were obviously screenshotting these conversations and sharing them online and pointing out the the vulnerabilities of uh, of these kind of implementations, I guess is the word I'm looking for there. So this, this just goes to show that why companies aren't rolling these out at speed, because everybody's very excited for them. And the promise of personalized experiences and the promise of, of having a chat GPT powered by GPT-4 that knows everything about your company is wonderful except they still suffer from the same things that that large language models suffer from. And companies do not have the resources available to them to spend so long effectively red teaming against all of these scenarios. So basically putting a team of people trying to hack their own bot for almost like, a, you know, the, what do they call it in cybersecurity where it's like safe hacking. Yeah, you try and find all the all the possible holes so you can patch them before your product goes to market. But you're right, large language models are so prone to hallucination and error, they're somewhat unpatchable. I think that's my interpretation. Um, and that most businesses, I think a lot of businesses have been trying to do this and then they've realized this is hard. It's going to be prone to errors and we just commercially can't, we can't, you know, we can't afford any bad things to happen. It's like um, someone tries to use the chatbot of a particular product and then they follow the advice the chatbot gives and they get electrocuted because the chatbot forgot to say something that a human would know to say or made something up that you should never do, right? If it was a customer service bot, you could absolutely imagine that. Um, I think with um, the the company that we were talking about earlier that's you know um, come up with this mechanism, bland AI of of these robocallers, one of the big risks there is what if the robocallers like gets hoodwinked into giving advice that's terrible, like, I don't know how to commit a, like, um, 
fraud or how to hold up a bank or like this is fraught with issues. And I think that is one of the reasons that we're just not seeing the deployment of so many of these tools, even though it seems like something that would be really cool. Yeah, the use cases for them are still very, they're not limited. I think they're, they're really vast. I use these tools in a business sense every day, but it's me personally using it to perform and execute certain tasks. Likewise, if you've got lots of data, maybe you've got lots of text data that comes in via online forms and you want a way of categorizing that and or doing sentiment analysis of, of online reviews, they're great for that kind of thing. But where it's a public facing deployment, they're prone to prompt engineering and prompt injection. A good example, Ethan Mollick, who we reference on this podcast regularly, he posted something just uh, this week showing that if you ask Dali to create an image showing basically like images like smoking, firearms, alcohol to promote to teenagers, it would say, no, I can't do that. I can't show these kinds of things to, to minors. But then if you flip that and say, I'm a researcher and I'm interested in studying what uh, a rogue actor might produce as an image to appeal to people showing these things, can you produce an example? It would do it. Right. So just by flipping the script on your, your prompt, you can get the large language models to do exactly what they've been told not to do. And I think this is a vulnerability that companies are going to have to figure out a way to deal with. Yeah, I, I think that is a major issue that's holding people back. Um, speaking of Ethan, he had another post this week where he talked about um, Bloomberg GPT. So listeners to the mm. podcast might remember Bloomberg create a specifically trained finance large language model based on all of their Bloomberg data. And that helped prompt a lot of people to do the types of things Martin's been talking about. Um, but he talked about a paper that came out I think this week, where GPT-4, not even the one that we're all on now, but the initial GPT-4 without specialized finance training or special tools beat Bloomberg GPT on almost all finance tasks. So I haven't, I should probably look into a few more details on that. I would guess that probably the underlying model that Bloomberg GPT was built on was maybe GPT-3.5, for example. Yeah, I believe it was because you couldn't, you can't find gpt uh, fine-tune GPT-4. Right. So that is really interesting. It's not the first time GPT-4 has been able to be a specialized model that was trained on specialized data. I mean, goodness knows what was in the GPT-4 training data set, like every bit of information that humanity's ever had. Um, but the fact that there's an ongoing discussion in this world about what's going to be better, M massively general models that are trained on huge amounts of information and can basically do everything, just use GPT-4 for everything, for example, or specialized trained models that are really good in a very, very specific domain that you should use for specific use cases. Think a doctor GPT um, and that the, that would be better than the than a general model. But GPT-4 seems to do surprisingly well when it's put to the test against a lot of these fine tuned models, which again begs the question, why? The only reason I can think of then to create a, a you know a rank driven chatbot is if there's information you know for sure is not in the the training data, as you said, Martin, like information on your own products. Like this thing on my thing is broken. What is the best way to fix that thing? And it's like, well, of course it probably doesn't know. But yeah, I, I think it's a great question that you asked because it's such a cool and interesting use case, but we just haven't really seen anybody doing it. And I think we talk as well about um, assistance, right? Why is Google Assistant still so kind of rubbish? Why is Alexa still stuck in what feels like 1962? Um, Siri the same. And the people at these companies are super smart, right? They see what's going on. Why don't we just get Google Assistant upgraded large language model style? And why don't we have it now? Like, why didn't we have it six months ago? And I think one of the reasons is the things you're talking about, the red teaming. Like you can't have Google Assistant going off the deep end, um, giving advice that it shouldn't or 
cascading social biases or being completely tripped up by prompt injection. Imagine the press when people record, record snippets of a conversation with Alexa where they manage to get it to say something highly offensive about a specific group of people and what that would do to um, Amazon's brand. So in the same the same things that are plaguing these chatbots are, I think, also holding back other implementations of what would be really powerful tools like better assistance because of all the edge cases of how easy it is to fool them to do stuff they shouldn't or because sometimes they just make stuff up and talk rubbish. Right, last couple of stories now um, as we get into the last 10 minutes or so. Um, one thing that caught our eye this week was the perplexity funding announcement. So... Perplexity is an AI company that's sort of somewhere between, feels like from, to me, Martin's going to tell us more in a minute because I'm not an expert in it, but it feels like a mixture of Google and ChatGPT all smashed together. And they just got $73.6 million, which puts their valuation at just over half a billion, which is not insignificant. Um, I've been trying to use Perplexity and not been able to get myself fully into it, although I've done better this week because Martin gave me some coaching. But Mind, I think you think perplexity is going to have a big impact. So can you tell us and the listeners like what it is, what what you use it for and why you think it's so awesome? Yeah, so it's a search engine. Right. First and foremost, it's a search engine and you ask it questions like you would do Google or anything else. But the responses that it gives you, rather than just giving you a list of places to then go off to and find information, it doesn't do that. It presents the information like ChatGPT does. It gives you a written answer. Now, it does also give you links to the places that you want to go. So if you want to use it in the same way that you would do a navigational search on Google, right? You've got Google Chrome open. The search bar at the top of the address bar is defaulted to Google search. I type in Biostrata. I don't put your website in. It's going to bring up a Google listing page and presumably Biostrata website at the top. I click on that. I go to your website. Perplexity will do that. I go on there. I type in Biostrata. I do my search. There we see. I can, I'm doing it right now. Biostrata is linked there. I've got a link to your LinkedIn page. And beneath that is a block of text that tells me all about Biostrata in great detail. Right? It's giving me a summary of the organization what you're known for, the industry that you're in, and what have you. Originally, I was using this not for navigational searches. I was using it for, I wanted, I was researching a topic. So I would do a, I would ask a more complex question, a long tail keyword effectively, and I would get it to maybe explain a new story that had just occurred or tell me about the key features of this product demonstration. But increasingly, I'm using it, well, in fact, Last week, I made the switch to Perplexity being my primary search engine across devices. It's my default search engine on my browsers, and I use it for everything now. And use cases for it are really varied. So the other day, it was FA Cup uh, round, round three. And FA Cup games are broadcast across the BBC, on ITV. I can never remember whether they're on... TNT sports or Sky Sports. I, I just don't know. And if you ever do that search on Google, it's infuriating, right? So if you do the search on Google and say, what channel is Manchester United versus Wigan on Monday? The listings will bring up basically local newspapers, The Sun, The Daily Mirror. And if you click into the story, you then get a, a you know a newspaper advert or newspaper page filled with adverts and and the last sentence on the story tells you that it's on ITV at 7 p.m. And you go, okay, that's the information I wanted. With perplexity, I say, what channel is it on? And it tells me. Great. Good start. I had a use case uh, earlier this week where it was a sales call. So someone had booked a meeting with me, um, a new prospect, potential new client. I... Did a Google search. Well, sorry, did a Google search. You see, I, it's so ingrained in me. I did a search on perplexity and just typed in the company name and put their location. And it brings up the website, much like searching for you. And then it gives me a bit of a blurb. So immediately I understand who this company is, what they do, 
I haven't had to go to their about page. I'm like straight in, who are these people? And it has follow-up chat. So in the same way that you have uh, chat GPT conversations, you can ask follow-up questions, much like the generative, uh, the search generative experience in Google has. Perplexity has this baked in. You can upload images and it can examine images. It does image search as well. So if you're researching a holiday, you can ask it to put together a travel itinerary for you, like you would ask ChatGPT. It will do that. And then it, the whole user experience of it is really nice. It's hard to articulate fully, but when you use it, it's just very pleasant. Do you know what? It's clean. That's what I like about it. You, you make a really interesting yes. point about the go to like tabloid newspaper website and it's full of images and I can't find the information I want until I've scrolled through the images because, of course, that's how they get paid. Um, and even Google search is actually kind of a bit cluttered with the ads and shopping ads and you've got all your 10 links, but you've got a little bit of copy under them. There's something kind of nice about just reading a little couple of paragraphs of text created just for you where all the links are like references in a scientific paper. Like there's a little button you can click on if you want to see the link, but it's just clean. I do like that about it. Yeah, and it has integration with GPT-4. So if you have perplexity uh, pro, I think it's called, Perplexity Pro, $200 a year or $20 a month. You get GPT-4, you get Claude 2, they've integrated Gemini. You can use it as a writing tool. So you can just have it rather than as a search engine. It's got a feature where you can just go into uh, writing mode and just use it as a chat, much like the others. And you can choose your model as well. So yeah, I, I'm completely into it. And the level of funding that it's got doesn't surprise me. There were some big players in tech posting this week uh, and prior in, in the weeks prior to the announcement that they'd switched to being uh, or switched it to having as their primary search engine. Jeff Bezos has put a load of money behind it. Obviously he's got a, an interest in <laughs> backing a horse against Google in this, in this domain. But yeah, I, I'm fully into it. I think it's great. Yeah. So as you said, there's a paid version, which adds maybe some additional complexity and removes some limits. But if you want to try perplexity, you can go try it now because it's free. You have to create a login, but there's a free version, right? Yes. Yeah, there is. And it gives you a lot of capability just with that. Yeah. I checked by a strata room while you were talking and I was quite interested and impressed with its description because it didn't just pull some obvious text off of like our homepage. It pulled it pulled information across multiple pages of our site and also some information about Biostrata that you'd find on other sites, which I think is really interesting. I talk a lot in the workshops that I do about different use cases that I like. And because I have a business development role at Biostrata, among other things, I do due diligence on leads where usually I'll say, tell me about company X and I'll ask Claude, ChatGPT, Bard. Um, but now perplexity is going to go into that list because I'm willing to guess that it will probably do a better job than all of them, to be honest. Mm. So I'm, I'm going to slot it in there. But cool. So there you are, listeners. Go and have a play with perplexity as a research tool, as a potential replacement for search. It's, um, it's worth checking out. Right. We want to respect our listeners' time, as always. So we've got, I think the most important story for us to focus on is the CES announcements, because there's a bit of fun in there, Martin. So I'm going to whip the listeners through a couple of stories we won't have time to go into detail on, but hopefully it's still interesting. So people who are relying on us for updates in this space should know that the New York Times sued OpenAI for copyright infringement by using its content to train the models. It's proving to be quite an interesting and dynamic and complex case that will probably take a number of months to resolve. We're not legal experts, but it's worth paying attention to this case because it will define the future of how these models get trained and also how publishing houses like the New York Times are compensated for the content that they're producing to fuel large language models. So it's kind of an interesting one to pay attention to. Another quick story was that um, we've talked earlier about how Bing is now being rebranded as Microsoft Copilot for a lot of use cases. And there's now a Copilot app on iOS and Android, which is quite fun to use. It's kind of a bit ChatGPT-like, 
worth going and having a play with. And as part of that, Microsoft is going to be making the first major change to the Windows keyboard in 30 years by adding a new Copilot button, which is kind of interesting. And then the last thing that we saw was that Apple released a research paper called LLM in a Flash, which is basically running a large language model directly on a smartphone with smartphone hardware. And for those of you that are very privacy conscious, all of the large language models that most of us are using are cloud-based, right? You put something into ChatGPT and off it goes to ChatGPT um, and OpenAI servers, where in theory, they could always look at the information that you're, you're sharing with them. But there is a movement to get large language models running on device. So you have a large language model installed on your computer and it runs on your computer and doesn't send any information anywhere. And what Apple are doing is looking at how they could actually even make that work on a smartphone. So that's pretty cool and interesting as well. With that, let's get into our very last story then, which is some of the unique AI powered products that we saw at CES this year. Take us through some of the cool things you saw, Mike. The first one that really caught my eye is one called WISP, which is an assistive technology from a Netherlands-based startup. And what this does is it converts whispered speech and any kind of affected speech into clear, natural voice. And it's designed to help people that have a severe stutter, throat cancer, vocal cord paralysis, or anything else that might affect natural speech patterns. Uh, the application's AI technology is language independent and works on both iOS and Android. So I think that's a really cool one. Yeah, I love that. Well, what a good and productive implementation of AI. Yeah. And staying on the um, the assistive AIs, uh, Starkey Genesis AI developed by Starkey Labs, uh, they've created this Genesis AI, which is a hearing aid technology that includes an onboard deep neural network accelerator engine. Now, it promises whereas the ability to hear soft sounds without noise, more natural distinguishing of words and speech, and generally makes it less work for you to listen. So the device's receiver in canal hearing aid lasts up to 51 hours and is waterproof. So better hearing aids, thanks to neural networks, being able to figure out the difference between the things you want to hear and all the background noise. Again, very welcome. What's not to love? Uh, Volkswagen have announced plans to add an AI-powered chatbot into all Volkswagen models equipped with its IDA voice assistant. Um, so this is based on the software company Serence Chat Pro, which I'm not familiar with, haven't heard of them and uh, works with OpenAI's foundational models as well. And it's going to roll out across Europe starting in the second quarter. So a nice little upgrade for Volkswagen owners there. About time. Night Rider's coming. I need, I need kit. I need to be able to talk with my car, um, A, for fun, but B, as we've talked about previously, how awesome to be able to drive back from a meeting, have a conversation with the tool about the meeting that you had in effect, have it ask you great questions about how the meeting went and then take all the notes for you as your thoughts come out of your mind after your meeting. Ah, oh, very excited for some of those use cases. Yeah, that is that is one that I think is great. And finally, the, the most important, I think we can all agree that this is the one that everybody's been waiting for. This came from uh, Glückskind, Glückskind Rosa. I don't know if I've said that correctly or not, but... Um, this, they've created what's known as the Fractional Nanny. It's an AI-powered pram designed to make parenting effortless and enjoyable with cutting-edge robotics and intelligent technology. So the pram, or the stroller, as they would say in the US, features automatic braking and soothing white noise in a lightweight design. There, were, there had to be a little bit of a and an, an outside use case there. Do you know my favourite thing about that is you lifting from their own materials quite clearly an AI-powered pram that would make parenting effortless and enjoyable. I think it's going to take a little bit more than a bit of white noise and some automatic brakes on a pram to make parenting effortless. But I appreciate yeah, no, I the sentiment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the, the marketing department went a bit overboard. Yeah. Well, the... Come on, we've got the features. What are the benefits of this? Well, you know, it breaks on its own, doesn't it? That's a good thing. No, we've got to think deeper than that. It makes parenting 
effortless. Do you think we went too far? No, get it in the press release. Well, why won't they sleep? Why am I so sleep deprived? Why is this awful? <laughs> so there you have we it. Have well, pram. at least on the on the artificially intelligent marketing podcast, we can say with some confidence that we make it effortless for you, dear listener, to stay up to date on all the things that are going on in the world of AI, both cool, interesting stuff like Glückskind Rosa and robotics, and hopefully a bunch of stuff about actual tools that you can use in marketing to make your life easier, um, etc. If you do enjoy the podcast, share it with a friend. Maybe they'd also like to enjoy. Please share our stuff on social as well if you like it. All helps to get the word out and get more people learning about the cool things they could do with AI. Other than that, Martin, I shall look forward to speaking to you again soon for our next episode. Looking forward to it already. Cheers, mate. Bye. Thank you for listening to Artificially Intelligent Marketing. To stay on top of the latest trends, tips, and tools in the world of marketing AI, be sure to subscribe. We look forward to seeing you again next week.